Good morning. One of the, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, one of the greatest disasters in American history was the sinking of the Titanic. That wasn't an American ship, was it? One of the greatest disasters in ship history. was the sinking of the Titanic. It happened on April 15th, 1912. One of the survivors, a lady by the name of Eva Hart, said this, two hours and 40 minutes after the iceberg had torn that 300-foot gash in the side of the boat, she said, I saw all the horror of its sinking, and I heard, even more dreadful, the cries of drowning people. What's most shocking when you read about that is there were 20 lifeboats and rafts. None of them was full. So those people sat at a safe distance from the ship next to empty seats and listened to the cries of drowning people. Only one boat, life raft number 14, went back into the darkness after the ship went down, searching by listening to the cries of those people to save a few. Now, if you could go back in history and speak to those people, what would you say? I think it would be unanimous. Don't just sit here. Do something. Now, to me, it's pretty obvious to draw the spiritual parallel with that. You and I have been, if you're saved, you have been delivered from doom and destruction. You have been delivered from the sinking ship. You are sitting in a lifeboat, soon to be delivered safely to the shore. And there are empty seats next to you in the lifeboat. So what are you going to do as you listen to the cries of drowning people all around you? Wouldn't you say to yourself, don't just sit here Do something. Do something. You say, well, what should I do? How do I row back to the crying voices in the icy water and reach out to rescue them? 
I jotted down four things today. Very simple things. I want this to be a very simple message because I want you to get these four things. The first thing is love. We remind ourselves all the time that Christianity is relational. We say, well, it's not religion, it's a relationship. And that's so true, but oftentimes as believers, you know what we do? We come by way of relationship and we turn it into religion. And we make it a list of things to do and things not to do. And we, even when we think about sharing the gospel with somebody, we make it a program to do rather than a relationship. God's way of reaching the world has always been incarnational. He came in the person of Jesus Christ the first time. And now he is still coming to the world in his body, the church. And the first thing that we need to grasp if we're going to reach a lost and dying world with the gospel is love. Fundamentally, we're to love Jesus. We saw last week that in Mark 3.14, it says Jesus appointed 12 so that he might be with them and that he might send them out. Don't go out until you've been with him. And what happens when you're with him? We always hear that phrase, to know him is to love him. I've never met anybody that's true of. Usually the more I get to know them, the more it's like, ugh. It's getting harder to love. But it's true of Jesus. Because the more we know him, the more we love him. And Jesus says, I want you to be with me first. So you have that love established, and then I'm going to send you out. That's our mission statement, to know him and to make him known. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What's the key to being a fisher of men? Follow me. So we, we worry about strategies and how do we get it right and how do we get a formula and how do we make it work? And Jesus says, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. It's fundamental that we love Jesus, first and foremost. In fact, in John 15, 5, he said, He who abides in me bears much fruit. That word abide means to be at home in, to settle down in, to rest in. It's to be, be at home with Jesus in a love relationship with him. And when you are in that relationship, Jesus says, you will bear much fruit. So the first thing is love have to love Jesus. But not only do I love Jesus, I'm to love my brothers and my sisters in the body of Christ. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. When you're with Jesus and you love Jesus, guess what happens? You start to become like Jesus. And what is Jesus like? He is love. And he says, you'll know 
people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So it starts with my love relationship with Jesus and it extends to my love relationship to my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. In John 17, we looked last week at Jesus' prayer. He says something interesting in verse 21 of John 17. Praying about his disciples and praying about us as well as the extension of the disciples, he says in verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then he says this in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. There's the strategy for evangelism. That we would be one. That we would be united in love with the same kind of love that Jesus and the Father have. And when we have that kind of love, he says, the world will know. There's our mission again, to know him and to make him known. How do we make him known to the world? We love Jesus and we love each other. And when people see you loving each other, you know what they say? I want that same kind of love. I don't see that kind of love in my family, in my circle of friends, in my world. I want that kind of love. And Jesus says, if you will perfect your unity among your brothers and sisters, the world will be looking on and they will say, I know that Jesus is who he says he is and I believe. George Malone used to say, the best strategy for evangelism is hug your brother. Right out of this passage. If we have true unity and love in the body of Christ, people will notice. Love Jesus, love your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Thirdly, love the lost. Romans chapter 8 is a favorite passage of many Christians. We love the end of that chapter where it says, who will separate us from the love of God? And then he throws out some ideas. He says, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful. We are in the boat and we are safe and secure. Nobody can separate us from the love of God. Great stuff. But if you keep reading... Notice what Paul says next. Chapter 9 and verse 2. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. He just celebrated the fact that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And then he says, I have this huge sorrow and grief in my heart. Why? Listen. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ... For the sake of my brethren. Nobody can separate me from the love of Christ, but I got a hurt in my heart for lost people. And Paul says, I am willing to be separated from Christ if it meant that somebody else 
could be united with him. I hope you're thinking, wow. I would be willing to give up my salvation if it meant the salvation of that lost person in my family. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? That's agape love. That's unconditional love. That's what Jesus did for you. He gave his life so that you could have life. And when we love people enough to say, I would give my salvation for that person, I think they will see that love and know that that didn't come from you. That came from God. First thing is to love. If you will love Jesus, love your brothers and sisters, and love the lost, I guarantee you, you will be effective in sharing the gospel. Second thing is to pray. Jesus said in John 15, 5, He who abides in me bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do what? Nothing. Why don't we get that? Why do we try to do so many things apart from Jesus? Why do we get our strategies and our plans and our programs and go do them and Jesus is back here saying you've left your first love? Jesus said, apart from me, if you don't abide in me, you can do nothing. Which tells me what? We need to pray. We need to love and then we need to pray. Prayer doesn't come natural. I don't know about you. It's a hard thing to pray. I think that's why the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Because they realize it doesn't come natural. They didn't ask Jesus, teach me to sing. Teach me to preach. Teach me to heal. They didn't ask any of those questions. They said, teach me to pray. Because prayer is hard. It's difficult. It's not natural. But it tells me it can be learned. You can learn how to pray. And you better learn how to pray. Because listen to what Jesus said about prayer. He said, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and it will be open to you. That's a promise. Jesus said, all the things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. If you love Jesus enough and your brothers enough and the lost enough to reach out to those crying lost people, you're going to start praying for them. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. And he says, if you ask, I will do it. I don't think we realize how much prayer affects this world. Best example in the Old Testament is when Moses went up on the hill and he had his arms raised in the sky. And when his arms were up, 
Israel won the battle. And when his arms came down, they lost. What a picture. When we pray, we affect the battle on earth. When we get lazy and self-reliant and we don't pray, we're losing the battle. And I love that story because Aaron and her came along when Moses got tired and held his arms up. When you're praying for needs in your life and you're praying for lost people around you and your arms get tired, have you got a brother, a couple brothers, couple sisters who will come and help you hold your arms up to say we're going to unite around you and we're going to pray together for that thing? The power of prayer. We've been looking the book of Acts at the early church in the last few weeks. And there it says at the end of chapter 2 that God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. But if you look at that passage and around that passage, it's interesting how often they pray. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, it says they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 4.31, they prayed and the house they were in shook. And then in Acts chapter 6, the disciples say, we have to devote ourselves to prayer. Prayer is essential. Say, I hear the cries of the lost. I care about them. How should I pray? How should I pray? Acts 4.29, the early church got together and they prayed. Here was their request. God, we want to speak your word with confidence. Help us to be confident in your gospel that we will proclaim it. In Ephesians 6.20, Paul asked for prayer that I may speak the gospel boldly. So when you start to pray for lost people, maybe you just start by praying for yourself. That you will have the boldness and confidence in God's word to proclaim it to those people. Pray for yourself for boldness. Pray for an opportunity. In Colossians 4.3, Paul says he was praying that God would open a door for the word. What's that? I'm praying that God will give me an open door, an opportunity to share the gospel. Give me the boldness to speak it and open that door so I get the opportunity. Pray for yourself, pray for opportunities, and pray for the lost. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, My heart's desire and my prayer for them is that they might be saved. He's praying for lost people. He's praying for Israel. He's praying for his brethren that they would be saved. Pray for yourself for boldness. 
Pray for the opportunity to share the gospel. And pray for lost people that they would be saved. And what I love about that phrase is, Paul says, my heart's desire and my prayer is that they would be saved. Let me tell you a little secret. When your passion and your prayer line up, things happen. My heart's desire and my prayer is that they would get saved. Some of us go through the motions in prayer. I'll tell you something. God hates rote repetition in prayer. He hates it. He tells us that in Matthew chapter 6. He says, do not pray meaningless prayers like the Gentiles do. And then Jesus teaches them how to pray, and he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And what do most people do? They repeat the Lord's Prayer over and over again in a rote, meaningless way. It's not what he meant. Don't, don't pray meaningless, rote, repetition prayers. Let your prayer become your passion. And if what you're praying is not your passion, then pray that it will become your passion. God, give me a heart for lost people. Give me the boldness when you open that opportunity that I'll go through it and confidently share the gospel. Who are you praying for right now? That when you That when you go to prayer, you weep over those people because they're lost and they're dying and they're doomed. Do you have that kind of passion? Do you have it for your kids that don't know the Lord? Do you have it for your friends, your neighbor that you talk to all the time and you realize he doesn't know the Lord? We need to love And we need to pray. And don't just make your prayer a list. Make it your passion. Make it your heart's desire. And if it's not, ask God to change your heart. Third thing is listen. Listen to lost people. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I have become all things to all men so that I might by all means save some. I became all things to all men. Now he named some of the things he became. He said to the... To the Jews, I became like to the Jews. To those under the law, like under the law. To those without law, like one without law. To the weak, like weak. So he, he became like these people. Now that doesn't mean, oh, you're a drug addict? I'll become a drug addict. Oh, you're a Mormon? I'm a Mormon. You like to cuss? I can cuss. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, I need to be sensitive to where this person is coming from. 
And I need to tune the message to where they are. And how do I know where someone's coming from? I listen to them. You see, this rules out canned presentations where I go around and share the gospel in a canned way and I say, don't interrupt me, I've got to finish this. One, two, three, four. The gospel is not a one-size-fits-all presentation to people. I need to listen to them, hear where they're coming from, and respond to them appropriately. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Paul said this, Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. I love that verse for a couple reasons. One, it tells me Paul was in the kitchen once in a while. And he says when you share the gospel with somebody, you need to listen to them, and then you... Now, the gospel never changes. But I can season the gospel in a different way for that person and make it more palatable for them if I understand where they're coming from. They say to me, I'm a religious person. I adapt the the message that way. If they say, I'm non-churched, then I meet them where they are with the gospel message. One of the rules of cooking is you always taste the food while you're cooking it so you can season it. Does it need a little more salt, a little more pepper? Uh, The other day I saw they had these uh, red peppers at the grocery store, a big bag of dried red peppers. And I thought that'd be cool to have, so I bought them. I didn't notice that on the package it had a scale, a heat scale, one to ten, and these were seven. So they're little tiny peppers, so we took them and chopped them up real fine, two of them, and put them in something. What was that? Yeah, whatever. (laughs) It doesn't matter. We put it in there, and, oh, green beans. Yeah. I love you. Um... (laughs) I just can't see you, that's all. We put it in the green beans, and it was fiery hot. I mean, every time you got a little piece of that red pepper, it just burned like crazy. So these things are going to last us the rest of our lives, and we will give them to our kids. But we will not, if you come over to eat at our house, we're not going to put the peppers in unless we know you're Hispanic and you love hot stuff, you know. (laughs) But you do that when you're cooking. You think, who's going to eat this and how do I make it most palatable for that person? And the same applies to the gospel. I need to listen to people. Understand where they're coming from. If they're non-church, I don't assume they know all kinds of verses. I have to meet them where they are. Jesus did that. In John chapter 3, he dealt with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, it says, he was the teacher of the Jews. He was a very religious man, a very moral man, but he was lost. Jesus used the direct approach on Nicodemus. He just said to him, unless you're born again, you're going to hell. 
That's what he said to him. Unless you're born again, you're not getting into the kingdom of God. Direct approach because he was religious. One chapter later, he meets the woman at the well. Irreligious woman. Jesus didn't say, well, it worked with Nicodemus, I'll try it again. No, he uses a subtle approach. What's he say to her? I'd like a drink. She gives him some water and he says, I've got some water to give you that'll last forever. It will satisfy your spiritual thirst forever. See, two different approaches because there's two different people that he's dealing with. We need to listen to people and see where they're coming from so that we can flavor, season the gospel message with grace to meet them where they are. Fourthly, how did that take so long? This was supposed to be the big point right here. Um, Fourthly, is speak. In Romans 10, 14, Paul said, how will they believe in him if they have not heard? Nobody's going to believe unless they hear. And how are they going to hear? You have to speak. It's great to love them. It's great to pray for them. It's great to listen to them. But it's not enough if you're not going to speak. And you can't hide behind, I'm praying, but I'm not talking. You can't hide behind, I love them, I take them pies every week. But I'm not sharing the gospel with them. You can't hide behind, I listen to all their troubles and I tell them I'm going to pray for them. See, at some point you've got to speak the message. They're not going to believe unless they hear the gospel. You say, well, what do I say? The best thing you can say is your testimony, your story telling somebody how you came to know the Lord. Telling your testimony is great because it's the easiest thing you can do because you know it so well. And people love reality TV, right? They, They love to hear true stories. So you tell them your story, they will listen to your story. And it's non-threatening because you're not pointing the finger at them, you're talking about yourself. You're saying, I realized that I was lost. I realized that I was a sinner. I realized what I was in. Or you tell about, I was involved in drugs. I I did these things. I offended God. You're talking about yourself. It's easy for people to listen to that. So when you get the opportunity, in fact, in the book of Acts, when you read through the book of Acts, you'll find three times Paul gave his testimony. Three separate times. I was on my way to Damascus, and here's what happened. When you get an opportunity, the door opens. The first thing you ought to be thinking about is how can I tell my story in a way that this person can hear it? I have several versions of my story, not that I change them, 
but I have a, like a minute and a half version. I have a 15-minute version. I have like a 35-minute version. It depends on how they're listening. If, if they want to hear more, then I'll tell them more. See, you, you tell somebody your story, and then you give them the opportunity to respond to that by saying, I want to know more about that. Now, I'm going to stop there. Is that the right time? It just doesn't seem like it went, went right today. Um, I'm going to save the rest of this because I want you to get the rest of it because I'm going to give you, next time I'm going to give you the way I share the gospel with somebody. And I'm going to lay it out for you as simple as I can lay it out for you so that you will have some kind of fallback, some kind of uh, uh, idea of what you're to share with somebody when you get that opportunity. When somebody comes to you like, with Peter in Acts chapter 2 and says, what must I do to be saved? This is going to be the thing that you can say. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell them this. After I tell them my testimony and they say, well, I want to know more about that, what are you going to tell them? And I want to give you that next time. But in closing today, I want to just challenge you with the fact that if you are a believer, you are sitting in the lifeboat. People are drowning spiritually all around you. And you need to do something. Start with love. Love the Lord with all your heart. Love your brothers and sisters. If there are people in the body of Christ, you can't, you have conflict with, you need to resolve that. You need to forgive. You need to apologize. You need to restore relationships because that's the heart of the gospel. It's love. And then love lost people enough to make it break your heart so that you pray in a way that your passion lines up with your prayer. So that you don't get up from prayer without tear stains on your shirt over people around you. And then listen to their story. Listen to where they're coming from with spiritual ears and sensitivity. And then when God opens that opportunity, when God opens that door for the word, speak. Speak. God has given every one of us a story. I don't have your story. I believe God is in control enough to lead you to the people that need to hear your story. You're the only one who can tell it. And when you get that opportunity to tell it, Tell it to the glory of God. Do something. Do something. We're going to close our service by remembering that Jesus did something for you and me. He didn't sit in heaven and just pray for you.
He came down here and gave his life for you. And in closing, we're going to take the bread and the cup and we're going to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're going to remember the way he delivered us from the sinking ship, from the doom and destruction that we deserve. And as we do that, I pray that you will contemplate that today. Prepare your heart. If you're here as a guest, you're welcome. This is the Lord's Supper. It's not our supper. Prepare your hearts. You're welcome to come to one of the tables. When your heart is ready, take the bread in remembrance of his body and the cup in remembrance of his blood. And let's celebrate that we have something to share with the lost world because Jesus did something for all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. that you are a loving, caring, giving God. That when we talk about love, it's not abstract. It's not a theory. It's demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. It's demonstrated in the fact that you left the comfort of heaven to come down into this wicked world and die on the cross in our place. And Lord Jesus, you told us to do this in remembrance of you because you knew that so oftentimes we would move away from the cross and focus on other things. And so today we come back to the cross, back to the simple bread and the cup, reminding us that Jesus died in our place. Lord, I pray that you would humble our hearts at the foot of the cross today. Help us to reflect and remember and celebrate our own salvation afresh, but also, Lord, give us passion for those around us who don't know you yet. And Father, help us to be people who are truly loving them, praying for them, listening to them, and speaking your truth into their lives. Father, we praise you and we thank you today for all that you are and all that you've done for us in Jesus.